that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst. On the program, we'll be hearing two speakers from the Women Transforming Cities National Conference on how women can change cities and how to make gender equality and social inclusion fundamental to municipal, municipal policies and municipal services. This is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you with me. On the show, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Sylvia Bashevkin, and uh, she's going to be talking about how do women transform cities. And uh, she's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto and author of The Tales of Two Cities, Women and Municipal Restructuring in London and Toronto, published by UBC Press. And uh, in addition, we're also going to be hearing from Prabha Khosla, and she's uh, going to be talking about uh, gender equality and social inclusion in municipal policies and services, and she's an urban planner um, and uh, has worked on cities um, around gender equality and democratic local governance um, uh, really around the world. And she'll be talking about a number of different issues, but often, uh, again, to um, really uh, uh, really fit in, I guess, with um, the, the conference, um, often relating it to uh, Toronto, um, a city that she knows uh, quite well. So both uh, really quite fascinating discussions, um, lively and um, very relevant as we um, talk about issues of gender inequity, um, inequality, and um, ways to make uh, services and and uh, cities generally um, more um, uh, more more equal and uh, attentive to the the diverse needs of. Um, of women and girls. And so this um, was part of the Women Transforming Cities Conference, um, and that uh, conference was held on May 30th, 2013. And uh, it was uh, really a wonderful conference, bringing together municipal elected leaders, urban designers and planners, um, women and girls um, who are all interested in transforming our cities into places where women are more involved in electoral processes and municipal governments um, are too responsive to the priorities of women and girls in uh, Canada's uh, urban centers. So really um, and a fantastic um, lineup of, of uh, panel sessions, discussions, um, 
keynote addresses from both scholars, practitioners, planning practitioners, um, and people in a, a variety of um, fields like housing um, and municipal policy and services. So uh, those uh, two speakers on the program this hour, and as I mentioned uh, in past programs, um, hearing um, we're going to be hearing content from the conference, um, which was on May 30th of this year, um, throughout uh, throughout the remainder of this year, um, kind of uh, sporadic throughout uh, throughout the next couple months, to really bring you some of that coverage um, about housing and um, equity lenses and and how all of these things come together. So, and that's something that uh, at the city um, I really have a. a really enjoy doing is bringing a lot of this um, content um, to you, um, content that you won't necessarily have heard um, or have attended some of these conferences and uh, really uh, meaningful um, and very critical in many ways, um, but necessary urban discussion. So without any further ado, uh, we're going to go into that. And again, this is, um, we're going to hear a short introduction actually. Um, uh, to the two speakers from the Women Transforming National Conference held on May 30th, 2013. Next speaker is uh, Dr. Sylvia Bashevkin, uh, whose title, talk title is How Do Women Transform Cities? Um, Sylvia is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, has written extensively about women and municipal restructuring. So. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you, Tiffany, and thank you to all the organizers, to the Coast Salish, and uh, thank you to all the uh, younger women who are here, because I think a message I would offer as someone who started studying this field more than 30 years ago is you can try and make a difference as a political scientist as well. So remember... <laughs> Remember that there are many, many streams towards, uh, towards influence. So I'd like us to begin with um, a question. Whether we can imagine a city where mums who are pushing strollers are welcomed rather than treated like lepers when they get onto a subway or a bus. Where the sidewalks are safe for older women who are walking with canes or walkers rather than serving as sidewalks, but becoming speedy express lanes for all these impatient young men on skateboards and bicycles. Can you imagine a city where city planners and municipal leaders actually gender their citizens in public rhetoric by referring to women transit users and women pedestrians and women joggers in parks? If you can dream this far, I would suggest you're well on your way towards winning one of the best practices um, uh, prizes from Women Transforming Cities. You're, you are a best, best practices world star, or if you live in cities other than Vancouver or Calgary or some other beacon of hope in our times, you must be like me. You must be a serial optimist, <laughs> or perhaps you are a delusional optimist, uh, and you insist on seeing the glass half full when it arguably has a gaping hole in the bottom. <laughs> so what do we know from political research about these questions? First of all, we know that concerned and vocal and mobilized local citizens do make a difference. We also know from political research that individual public leaders matter. They matter for doing good and, unfortunately, for doing damage. And third, we know that mobilized citizens and individual leaders together can shape municipal jurisdictions at least as much, if not more so, than the <laughs> 
achievement and opportunity. We have an uplifting history, an uplifting story that dates in particular from the Industrial Revolution and the chances that urban settings provided to individual women and girls, many of them were immigrants, and offered them chances to break free of their families and the religious strictures that were very powerful in rural Canada and small town North America generally. After all, cities were where so many women had the chance to break down the barriers that faced them in those smaller places. It allowed them to work for pay, to attend university, to demand the right to vote, the, to demand the right to public office, to run as, um, as uh, public servants, to enter the professions like medicine and law, to create a broad variety of social reforms that are with us today, much of what we're so proud of in our cities that we talk about, like public libraries and pure food and drug laws and child labor laws. These are the legacies of social feminism, of the first wave of, um, of uh, feminism or suffragism in this country. In fact, we can argue that so many significant social changes that came out of the progressive period in Canadian history are, in fact, crucial legacies of, of our identity. In other words, of the proud history of urban women in this country. And I think we need to embrace that when we think about challenges for the future, that we have a tremendous foundation upon which to build. In my remarks today, I'd like to focus on returning to the momentum that was once the wind at the backs of progressive women activists and women public leaders in cities across Canada, because we do have the opportunity to go back to a very proud legacy. For me, the contrast between the inspiring background and our current predicament is all too stark. In Toronto, where I have lived and worked for more than 35 years, we find an unprecedented crisis of both citizen mobilization and local political leadership. We know that even the late-night talk show hosts in the United States know about this, the second problem. <laughs> and they generally know nothing about Canada, right? We're that blank space on a weather chart. Anyway, they may not recognize the links between the two challenges, however. Permit me to point out, in terms of a link, that more than a year ago, the deputy mayor of Toronto told reporters that one of the most crucial problems in the city was that voters routinely elected opponents of his ally... Mayor Rob Ford. The deputy mayor of Toronto said, on the record, and I quote, my advice to the taxpayer would be don't send us any more activists. Don't send us any more unionists. Don't send us any more cyclists. Send us some people down here with good common sense who just want to manage the city's affairs. That's what's needed. End of quotation. Now, what can we say about a civic leader who portrays citizens in a narrow, impoverished, and depoliticized way as taxpayers, who wants his colleagues on city council to, quote, manage the city's affairs, rather than to create a better urban environment, rather than to create a strengthened civic fabric in a place that is, after all, the destination of choice for about half the new immigrants to Canada. What can we say about a deputy mayor who literally denigrates the choices made by citizens who take the time and energy to vote in elections? And they are, after all, unfortunately, a minority of the eligible voters. At one level, I would argue that statements of this variety constitute a tragic commentary 
on the wizened state of urban democracy in our times. They are particularly regrettable in my view, given that the deputy mayor's comments to the media drew minimal critical response during the more than 13 months that they have stood on the public record. In fact, I kept that quotation in a file, hoping that it would just be you know, targeted, but I've never heard anybody actually take it on. On another plane, the state of Canada's largest city can inspire us to seek out better examples elsewhere because we all need to pursue hope and light in the darkness. I want to propose today that the unprecedented crisis of both citizen mobilization and political leadership in our largest city in this country demands that all Canadians concentrate attention on finding ways to transform cities so they are better in the future than they are at present. I want to provide five modest suggestions that can make cities better for the majority of our urban citizens, who, after all, are women and girls, who are, on average, earning less than men living in urban areas, and who are therefore more dependent on public amenities, such as public transportation, public parks, and the planning of public spaces, than men citizens. First, a modest suggestion. Can we align public infrastructure in advance with proposed private development? A revolutionary question. We have far too much of the reverse, which is backwards and fundamentally corrosive of any sense of a meaningful, fulfilling urban experience. From my own daily commute, I can say that my local subway station in Toronto was built to accommodate very, very few users. It has one narrow escalator, often out of service, one narrow staircase for both exit and entry, and they lead to one corner of a four-corner intersection. That station is now completely overcrowded and dangerous because we have had zero entry or exit changes despite the construction of massive numbers of townhouses and condominiums, of course, in Condo City, uh, in that area. We have new cranes on the skyline, and they mean the situation is only going to deteriorate. Is there no ba basic fire regulation, I ask as a, as a subway user, is there no basic fire regulation, for example, that is being violated by this lack of municipal foresight? Second suggestion, question. Perhaps we could insist that talk about pedestrian alternatives to cars, buses, and subways becomes more than just hot air. We have cities, and I live in one, that forces walkers into the street because some developer has been allowed to build hoardings that take over the sidewalk and that remain on the sidewalk year after year. This is fundamentally violating the rights of everyone but the condo builders. We have heavy trucks idling with all their noise, belching diesel fumes, blocking the areas where people need to walk, we have a far from pedestrian, heavenly situation. In short, can we think about making urban pedestrian alternatives safe and walkable? After all, how can we be pedestrians if we can't walk there? And possibly even pleasant. Third question. Could we think about ensuring that police officers enforce sidewalk safety as rigorously as they enforce parking bylaws? Is it not more of a civic hazard for squads of young men to race along sidewalks on bikes and skateboards? 
endangering everyone in their path, and particularly elderly women. Is it not more of a civic hazard for those guys to be racing along the sidewalks than it is for a car to be parked in a rush hour clearance zone? From my observations over more than 35 years, the deployment of enormous resources to ticket and tow cars that linger five minutes into rush hour stands in bold contrast to the willful neglect of sidewalk safety, which is particularly significant, I want to emphasize, in a population that's aging and where we know there are two women for every man after the age of 80, which is where the vulnerability on the sidewalks, I think, becomes particularly crucial. A fourth revolutionary question. Could we require that plans for childcare centers be considered in all proposed commercial and residential construction projects? This is done in many cities and other parts of the world, even in the mother country, the UK. If you read the BNA Act, we're supposed to be modeling ourselves on the UK. Anyway, uh, if, if, integration, if integration is seen as not feasible because people say, well, there will be no children living on the premises. Why? Because, I don't know, it's a senior citizen's home or something. Or there will be no children coming in because the parents who work there don't want to bring their kids to work. At least let's force a public conversation. Let's force that conversation to occur so that we can create acceptable parameters for justifying either the inclusion or exclusion of daycare spaces in every new commercial and residential construction site. Right now, from my observations, we have wheeler-dealer approaches in many cities in Canada, and these violate our rights as citizens to know what is going on. And P.S., of course, we never are quite told why, why couldn't there be a child care center in that, in that property. Fifth question, could we demand that municipal election campaigns talk about transportation, planning, housing, child care, and policing in ways that are explicitly gendered? Could we help to accomplish this, perhaps, by pressing journalists to cover the stories we want to hear about? by nominating and electing more progressive politicians who are prepared to act on our agendas. Of course, by holding more conferences like this one. That would move things uh, forward in a, in a very big way. Now, if we look back to the period immediately following the forced amalgamation of Toronto with its um, uh, various boroughs, and the renewal of local democracy in Britain's largest city, which followed the election of a new Labour government in 1997. In that period, I undertook a comparative study of women's civic engagement in Toronto and London. Now, we know Toronto's first amalgamated mayor in the mid-1990s was Mel Lastman, and the first leader of the Greater London Authority was Ken Livingston. Now, I would argue that outside a science laboratory it would be harder to find a sharper contrast. As a social scientist, it's very hard to control the lab, but here I, I had a controlled laboratory experiment. So my, my analysis, which was reported in a volume called Tales of Two Cities, found significant differences in the opportunities for women's representation that were directly attributable to the nature of mayoral leadership in post-amalgamation Toronto and post-democratic uh, de renewal uh, London. The differences included, first, the presence in Ken Livingston's London of bureaucratic units under the mayor's uh, control that were designed to promote and deliver substantively on the policy concerns 
of women citizens living in London. Under Mel Lastman, we had the complete absence of any such unit in Toronto, and we continue to have the absence of such units in Toronto, even though we've uh, had a number of different mayors uh, since uh, Mayor Lastman. As well, if we look at the uh, comparison between post-amalgamation Toronto and post-reform uh, London, we can see that the attention paid to women's employment, women's housing, childcare, transportation, the attention paid to those substantive policy areas in the greater London municipal planning discussions and the official planning documents during the Livingston era was significantly more than the total absence of any such attention in the planning documents of post-amalgamation Toronto. In fact, it was very, very hard to find the word women in the entire official planning document of post-amalgamation Toronto. We had no presence, you can argue, complete invisibility of more than a majority of the population. Now, if we had a visitor here from another planet, that person or being might interject at this point that the differences between Ken Livingston's London and Mel Lastman's Toronto had to do with more than just simply the nature of Ken Livingston and Mel Lastman. That's certainly true. They had different politics, but there was a lot more going on. We know that there are institutional factors that shape what being a mayor means. We know that there's an important structural dimension to the situation, namely the mayor of Toronto and the mayors of most Canadian cities are highly constrained relative to the mayor of London. Mayors of most Canadian cities are highly constrained in fiscal terms, in jurisdictional terms, and in electoral terms. And we know that we're, we're often reminded that they have limited money, they have limited power, and they often have an unwieldy reliance on suburban voters who, as we know, tend to care more about low taxes than they do about the quality of life in inner cities. But we also know that dating back to the late 19th century, mobilizing urban citizens has been crucial to pushing back against these political constraints. Because it's not clear that mayors of Canadian cities in the age of first wave feminism, for example, were significantly more powerful than they are right now. We know from volume after volume, in fact, of cross-national urban political research that the most consistently engaged groups in an economically dynamic local scene such as we find in contemporary Toronto and many other places in this country, the most consistently engaged groups are the commercial interests, notably property developers. We know from the comparative urban research that these interests work day to day, week by week, year after year, to maximize their economic returns, both their current returns and their future returns. And as a result, we know the priorities of the public more generally and particularly the sorts of policies that matter to youth, to working women, to sexual orientation minorities, to Aboriginal peoples and immigrants who form crucially distinctive components of our urban populations, these concerns, these priorities, can fall by the wayside because the most mobilized and the most motivated segment of the urban population comprehends each of these groups, including ourselves, as market niches, not as citizens of a democratic polity. Because that's the nature of that interest. That's how, that's how they see us. You might ask, what changes could raise the stature of the broader public considerations on the municipal agenda? And again, if we turn to the comparative research, we can see here evidence that mayors and members of city council can insist, they can insist 
on including a wider set of considerations in urban decision making. And they can do this despite the hue and cry that comes from critics. After all, Ken Livingston wasn't universally adored in London, and he did push back against the interests that opposed his agendas. Permit me to conclude with a brief example. If we look at London, England during the Ken Livingston years, we see a recognition that women working for pay were on average far more dependent on public transportation than their male counterparts. And this underpinned Mayor Livingston's promise and the promise of London generally in their 2002 official plan to build two new cross-city rail lines, which are under construction. Two new cross-city rail lines increase bus capacity by 40%, impose congestion charges on cars entering inner London. And they pushed back and they insisted on doing this in part to pay for the infrastructure investments and in part to open up space for more buses. So there was a lot of pushback, but they went ahead and they made things happen. Ten years later, living in Toronto, I have yet to hear an official voice at the mayoral level or in the planning realm speak to transportation as a basic matter of fairness for more than half the city's population, namely women, vast numbers of whom are working for a living. I'll conclude here. I look forward to your questions and your comments. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sylvia. Um, I'm going to ask you to hold your questions uh, uh, until after this uh, last speaker, uh, who is Prabha Kosla. Uh, her talk title is Gender Equality and Social Inclusion in Municipal Policies and Services. In addition to the bio that uh, is listed in your um, program, I just want to highlight that Prabha works with UN Habitat, uh, has some really important chapters in a new book uh, called Building Inclusive Cities that came out last year uh, that I would encourage you to take a look at. So thank you, Prabha. Good afternoon. Um, I, would, I would like to acknowledge and thank our presence on the unceded lands of the um, coastal um, Salish peoples. I also, before I begin, want to thank the many women and the many hours that they have spent from uh, Women Transforming Cities um, in organizing this conference and actually getting us all here today. Um, I also want to thank them for putting the many concerns and priorities of diverse women and girls and gender equality on can, in Canadian cities on center stage. I don't think we've had a moment like this, at least in my memory, and I've been working around uh, women's rights in cities for many years, and I think that's, it's really amazing that we're all here today talking about what we, we are talking about, which are concerns about women and girls in cities. Um, I'm going to speak a bit to the need for a diversity and gender um, analysis in cities. I'm going to step back and take a slightly bigger um, sort of canvas. Um, and um, I'm going to talk to urban planning, and I'm going to talk to also um, Toronto in terms of diversity and poverty. Um, and then to conclude, I will actually give some examples of some other institutions and, and a city that are uh, putting gender equality um, on center stage. Now, as you all know, we, we live in patriarchal societies, um, not just historically, even today. So um, 
I, the reason I want to say this is because, you know, our cities are not gender neutral. They have been constructed by the value systems and the divides that patriarchy has created. And so if you look at how women have been, and girls have been disadvantaged by patriarchy, our cities in how they've been constructed, how they've been planned, have also disadvantaged us. And I think a lot of the speakers in, in the sessions earlier and Sylvia and the people this morning have actually mentioned what some of the exclusion and disadvantage um, looks like. But in, in terms of urban planning, I want to talk a bit about, and I think a lot of you know, like in the, in the early planning of cities, and what we did is we, the cities were designed by men for men. So it was able-bodied, childless men and how they went to work and how they came home. It was not about women's journeys to work. Uh, we were seen as, you know, working in the home, in the private sphere. Men work outside the home, in the public sphere. So all those divisions, which are false dichotomies, because women have always worked outside the home. Women do have the right to public space. But they have actually shaped a lot of what urban planning became in terms of planning our cities. So my argument is the need for local governments to focus on what is women's day-to-day -day living, where so many, the majority of women do so-called work in the home, in what I call the care economy, and that as part of a local government, they have a mandate and a responsibility to the public good, the public good also being half of who lives, women, who lives in, in cities, which is women and girls. So... Um, my, I'm a planner, so my, my interest is more in, in looking at urban planning, but I just want to underline how much urban planning shapes how um, each of us live. Um, you know, it, it shapes sort of density, it's, it shapes the space of cities, it's space where, it shapes where transit go or does not go, um, you know, where condos go up and they do not go up, what kind of recreational services we get or, or we don't. And... Um, I, I did a quick review of the City of Toronto's official plan, the online version. I tried to see what they said about women. Well, surprisingly, the official plan does not mention women once. Neither does it mention First Nations or Aboriginal peoples. Um, it does mention people with uh, disabilities and seniors, but it does not distinguish that uh, men with disabilities and women with disabilities have different realities and needs and that older men and older women also have different priorities in cities. So they're mentioned in very uh, gender-neutral terms. To me, what this says is that really women are missing from shaping um, the city and defining its priorities. And I'm sure Toronto is not the only municipality in Canada where women are missing from the official plan. I think that's probably true in many other Canadian uh, cities and towns. However, what we do know is that women are organizing and mobilizing on a day-to-day -day living to change our cities, to make our cities work for us. So in spite of the, the non-existence and the disappearance from the official plan, we do know that we are part of what is making cities work better, function better. It's just that we are often not represented in the official power structures. And those are, the, again, patriarchally driven, and those are some of the structures we do, we do need to change. Um, okay, the other, the other thing I want to talk about is um, sort of 
poverty and the growing inequality in Canada. I think that we, we all hear about it, we know about it, and many of us live it. And to me, this is really part of the bigger picture of how neoliberalism is influencing Canada. Um, I look at the various crises of capitalism, the financial meltdown. I look at what I feel is a very misled austerity agenda at the municipal and federal levels. And to me, all of those kinds of things are fueling the poverty in Canadian cities and the, and the disparity and inequality. Um, I feel obviously local governments have a, a role to also address this. So um, I will speak to Toronto because it's where I live. Uh, but in Toronto over the last, I would say, at least 10 years, there's been numerous studies that have been released that look at um, poverty. So, for example, there was a, an earlier one called po Poverty by Postal Code by United Way. There was a second version looking at vert vertical poverty, three cities in Toronto, income disparity. So there's been a few. And... Um, I would say the vast majority do not disaggregate data by sex. So, you know, for me, this is very disturbing. So we are saying, and they're all saying, okay, all these reports, that there is a growing poverty in racialized communities. Not all racialized communities are new immigrants. There is growing poverty in more recent immigrants to Canada. But if we do not say who are these people, then we don't really know, right? So the language, again, is very gender neutral. They talk about loan support parents. Well, I, you know, I'm sorry, it's not okay. We, there, are, there are men who are raising children on their own, and I'm not saying that they are not, but we know that the vast majority of that are women-headed households. So we need to say, who is it that's becoming poorer? And really, none of these studies have. The only, the, most, the only study, which is a recent one from February this year, which looks at, um, it's called It's More Than Poverty, Employment, Precarity, and Household Wellbeing by PEPSCO and McMaster University and also United Way, they are the, really the first major study that is disaggregating data, and they're also looking at the Hamilton and the greater Toronto region together. So again, my concern is I, I do not understand why is... 52% of the population, not a variable worthy of analysis. I think this is really problematic, and I'm going to tell you a bit more where, where this goes and how it is. So, for example, um, in Toronto now, and I, I don't know if you know what the data looks like, but I would say more than half of Toronto lives in poverty of various sorts. And then there's a definition of what is that poverty. To me, that is just shocking that in, in a city in Canada, we have such fantastic numbers of, of who lives in poverty. Okay, and it is clear that it is racialized. But part of what's happening also is the changing nature of work. There are so many more women working. We all know that. Stats Canada is telling us that. But what are we doing for work? Many women cannot get a 40-hour work week. You know, the, the minimum wage is like 10 or 10.25. So many women are working two, two or three part-time jobs. So there is a question of what's happening to children, how are we making ends meet. And to me, it's like, you know, I actually had to think for this paper that is it better for women to stay on social assistance? Because then you will at least get some daycare subsidy or medical subsidy or some help and support. But if, I, you know, if, if women are going out there to work for $10 an hour, you are just going deeper into poverty. 
we are not changing women's lives. And for me, I think that local governments are responsible to these issues. Look, you know, we have to engage and say, what is happening to the nature of work? What is happening to the level of precarious work in Canada? Like, what is going on? You know, the weakening of labor laws, the loss of union density. I, I, and, you know, these things impact women because unions have been very important in fighting for women's rights and changing the, you know, the poverty level wages and having a working week. So I feel like, okay, so there is a growing poverty, but it's tied to this larger political um, and economic picture. Now, the reason I'm mentioning all of this is because the City of Toronto staff were involved in most of these studies. If the City of Toronto had a more gender-sensitive approach to itself, to, how, you know, to its mandates, it would, its staff would have been educated on the need for more, you know, a more aware lens. So what do we do? They did not raise the issue with any of these researchers that to have sex disaggregated data is a very critical thing. And, and why is all this important? Because these reports do impact Toronto and affect its policies. In the end, it's the city of Toronto is looking at that data and they're going to say, well, you know, are we going to do something about it? And if we are, what are we going to do and how are we going to do it? So if we do not know, right, who is poor in Toronto and how, because it's such a diverse city, black women's poverty and how come they're poor and why they're poor is not necessarily the same as the First Nations women or Tamil women or Somali women. If we do not know how and why is it that women are poor, we cannot get rid of the poverty. We cannot reduce it. We will not know what's the best way to spend the, the money and what are the best kind of programs we need. So again, we need to have a diversity and a, and a gender analysis so that we can start to see how do we reduce poverty in cities. But the other thing is, I also want us to make a link between things in Toronto like young black men getting shot and killed. So what do we do? We, what we do? We, we go out there and we hire more police and then we build more basketball courts for black men. Like, you know, how come we're not talking about the mothers and the grandmothers of these boys? They belong to somebody. They're not a random factor out there called young black men. No, really. So, you know, it's, it's like maybe we need to stop and see. We need to see what does it mean. Maybe we need to understand racism better. We need to understand exclusion better. These are mostly, many of them are Canadian-born. So that's what I'm saying. The, the, the poverty is not only of in, in terms of new immigrants. Um, anyway, so you, you get where I'm going with that. I just feel like we, we really need to stop and say, what is it that we are losing and what are the impacts of not having that analysis at a municipal level? Um, but the, the other side of this is I, want to, I also want to look a bit at housing because I feel it's a, it's a fundamental need for everybody but, uh, but women. And I, I want to talk about with that, a bit about that local governments can actually change things. There's a lot we can do as both municipal governments, but also that there's a wealth of knowledge and creativity in all of you. There's amazing women's civil society. There's amazing all kinds of civil society in Canadian cities. And they are part of the solution. And the cities, I don't feel, tap into the wealth of the citizens. They really don't. And that is a, is a really a big, fantastic loss. Um, so I, I, I feel it's... So I'm just going to raise some of the issues that I think we need to change so that the cities are slightly better for women. 
Um, I think the whole issue of housing, affordable housing, appropriate housing, there was a really good panel that I was a part of this, um, this morning, and thank you to all the people who spoke there. Um, we need to have women involved in the design of neighborhoods. Suburbs are not the best way for anyone to live. The idea of isolating women in these so-called nuclear families out there by themselves is really unhealthy. If we had a different notion of urban planning, if we let women plan cities and residential neighborhoods, we wouldn't do these little, you know, row after row, of, and in this really sort of stark and sterile neighborhoods. We need to plan where women's day-to-day -day living, where, where childcare comes together with the kind of unpaid work women do. How do women do all the other things that women do in homes? Right? All the women who are cooking and selling food, or they teach music, or they're baking, or they do tailoring, there's a lot of work that women do to not be so poor. So if we were to design residential areas that are mixed use, that have transit, where we combine childcare, we have some kind of economic incubators, we support the work women do in the home to actually leverage it a little bit out. So that instead of making 30 bucks a week, you could make 60 bucks more a week. I think the city has a role to change the economic departments of municipalities. We have to look at what is women's poverty. We have to look at how can the city's economic departments support women and empower women economically. I, I think that's a really important local government mandate. Um, we, can, you know, we can look at improving women's skills. We can look at uh, how cities can support micro, medium, or small enterprises. Um, I'm, I really think we need to start looking at childcare centers as possibly a 24-hour service. I think there's a lot of women in shift work. Um, there's a lot of men in shift work. And with the, the nature of the changing economy, I think we, we need to think differently. You know, we need other kinds of options. Um, what else? I also think that um, the provision of social services or recreational services is really important uh, to women, to raising families and to children and young men and women. And these should be free services. That, you know, th these are some of the kinds of things that can assist women's domestic burdens and local governments are accountable to uh, reducing women's domestic burdens. Okay, so in, just to conclude, I'm going to um, give you a few examples of um, some other institutions that do uh, gender equality and diversity work. I particularly like Vienna, Austria, and some of you might have heard me talk about Vienna before. You know, they began their, their notion of gender mainstreaming in the early 1990s. And I kind of like their approach because what they did is each municipal department had to do a pilot project and they had to develop their own guidelines for gender mainstreaming. And it was a very sort of, uh, it was a very conscious project. Uh, everybody's watching, we're learning, and then we, we change and, 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 um, as we go on. And as we get better, it then starts to incorporate policy and change the entire department. So they have done work that looks at gender, age, and social and cultural backgrounds together. And they've done a lot in the domain of design of public spaces. So they've changed the notion of pavements and pathways. Um, they have put a lot more lighting in the city. And it's, all, it's not random, yeah? It's very, very deliberate. Um, they have more road crossings. Um, and through this whole process, they've actually changed planning and norms, and they've changed the notion of official plans. 
Um, they have gender responsive budgeting in, in their municipal departments. They have redesigned cemeteries because they feel that, and they have done the research, that the, the people who visit them most are older women. So what do we do to redesign cemeteries is we put more benches, we make sure that the pathways are smoothed over so you can have a mobility device, so you can have a, um, a wheelchair. Um, they've, they've brought in more taps at a lower level, um, and there's better signage and safer washrooms. And then they have developed a public campaign to educate citizens about gender mainstreaming and gender equality in a municipal level. And that's been really fascinating because they have these very trippy posters and they do a whole sort of um, changing of roles of the gender division of labor. So they have a lot of pictures of, you know, with men with babies and their women doing manual work and, you know, all of that. Oops, sorry. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about the Asian Development Bank, which is a bank. And they have, as a bank, they have pro-poor gender equality conditionalities on f almost 40% of their loans and many of their grants. And these are loans and grants for large urban infrastructure projects. So it's roads, it's bridges, it's public transport, it's water, it's sewage, it's all of those things. And I want to talk about, about the UK, which as by law requires that local governments have to have gender equality and anti-racist action plans. And that is, again, it's a way to start to address exclusion and uh, discrimination in society. Okay, sorry. Thank you. I like to work steady if you know what I mean In fresh dreams, I'm a mean machine
stay. Dreams they burn down to the ground. We made the fire. We scorched our way. Toronto's Kenny Star with Mean Machine, and uh, you're listening to the city here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, syndicated on. CJSF 90.1 FM, and that's CJSF.ca, and this is all available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and you were hearing from Dr. Sylvia Bashevkin, and she was answering the question, or responding to it, um, how do women transform cities, and uh, talking about her research, looking at London, England, um, in uh, comparative perspective with Toronto, um, and looking how uh, to see how municipal changes and municipal restructuring um, have influenced or influenced the outcomes of uh, democratic and local participation um, by women in those cities. And uh, secondly, you heard from Prabha uh, Koslan. She was talking about gender equality and social inclusion in municipal services and policies. And again, this is all uh, from the Women Transforming Cities uh, conference held on May 30th of this year. And uh, that was the first uh, national conference held by the organization Women Transforming Cities. And the title of that conference was Designing an Ideal City for Women and Girls. And you can check out more about uh, the organization at womentransformingcities.org on uh, Twitter uh, with the handle WomenTCities. And uh, again, uh, really some uh, very important stuff and, and necessary uh, critical discussions around these issues. We're going to go out with a few uh, more tracks if we have time. Um, this is The City, and uh, we're here live on CATR every Tuesday from 5 to 6 p.m. and syndicated on CJSF uh, Burnaby on 90.1 FM and CJSF.ca, and that's Fridays from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Thanks so much for being uh, being with me today. Uh, we're going to be back next week with more critical urban discussions. And we've got a few tracks uh, coming your way. Um, have a wonderful week. Uh, and again, um, be back next week. Blank space on a weather chart. Pretty horses and pale thoughts Walk below these lines
Nine by six or eight by 